Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We've been studying over our last few uh, sermons God's appointed time for everything. He is sovereignly in control of every single thing in the universe. There's a time for everything and he's appointed it. He is sovereign over all. The question then is if he is sovereign over all, to ask the question that that little book asks on God's sovereignty uh, explained to high schoolers, if God loves me, why can't I get my locker open? In other words, what's wrong? If everything is right in heaven, it's all been appointed by him, what's wrong with my life? What's wrong with the world? Solomon is going to begin addressing that here in the next chapter. Let me just give you a little heads up about the structure of this. The structure of Ecclesiastes is complicated at some point. What we're going to do is study tonight verses 16 through 22, the rest of the chapter. And in our next study, we're going to use that as one of the first couple of points to look at all of the fourth chapter. We're going to isolate this, and then we're going to show how it connects with the next chapter. Let me read that to put it in our minds. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 16. After talking about God's sovereignty, he says, Furthermore, I have seen that under the sun. Now, let's stop right there. Remember, let me remind you that being un- life under the sun means life this side of the garden, this side of the fall, and this side of heaven. We're in between the fall and the redemption. This is life under the sun. I've seen under the sun that in the place of justice, there is wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, there is wickedness. I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man. For the time for every matter and every deed is there. I said to myself concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other indeed. They have all the same breath, and there is no advantage for a man over a beast. For all is vanity. All go to the same place. All came from the dust, and all return to the dust. Who knows that the breath of the man ascends upward, and the breath of the beast descends downward to the earth? I've seen that nothing is better than that a man should be happy in his activities, for that is his lot or assignment. For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? Interesting passage. This is, in some senses, one of the highest planes on which a preacher in the Bible preaches philosophically. It's been called the, uh, uh, the black sheep of the Bible by some. Some people think that this is almost ununderstandable. It's too esoteric, it's too philosophical. And yet, as we get note over and over, chapter 12 says this was addressed to young people. Solomon had every intention that what he was writing was not only understandable, but was understandable to everyone. Solomon talks frankly. Solomon is a is not that guy who you would sit down to lunch with if he had something to confront you with, would spend 20 minutes of warm-up. He says what he thinks right off the bat, and that for good reason. Remember, this is at the end of his life. He started out so promising. Everything was going great. The whole nations were coming to him. All the nations surrounding Israel were coming to him to give him homage, to see his wisdom, to understand the blessing of the Lord. And yet, he chose 
primarily because he attached his life to ungodly women who worshipped other gods, he chose a different path than Yahweh, a different path than God. They pulled him because of his love for them toward their idolatry. This, though, is, and by the way, that's where we finish with Solomon in 1 Kings 11. He chases after the high places. He's creating temples for these, these wives that he had created for, for military alliances that he should have never, ever put any confidence in. At the end of, uh, or at the middle of 1 Kings 11, he's turned from the Lord, and that's the last we hear of him until we get to Ecclesiastes. Now he's looking back on life. And he's looking back on life with a lens, with a wisdom lens that you and I don't have. This is the wisest man by gifting of God to have ever lived except for Jesus himself. And his evaluation, his understanding of of life, of justice, of injustice, of God, of sovereignty, of sin, of judgment, of life, of death, is something we would do well to pay heed heed to. If you look back just over the last few months in the newspapers and on um, the cable channels, on the news, on the network news, you would have good reason to ask what in the world is happening on our planet. Specifically, what's happening in our country. It seems that the bad guys and the bad morals are winning. And who we think the good guys are and the good morals and the good standards are losing. I want to remind you through the voice of Solomon tonight that that's nothing new. It's nothing new at all. Solomon will tell us over and over there is nothing new under the sun. God hasn't been asleep or slumbering. He has seen every single appointed movement on this planet and even in our country. The conundrum for Solomon is where we pick up tonight. In this discussion of divine sovereignty, which he just said, in that, uh, that famous passage we know so well in verses 1 to 9, that God has appointed a time for everything and everything for its time. And the question that begs being answered is this, then why don't the good guys win? Why doesn't God's morals trump? What answers is the obvious logical objection to the supposed perfection of the plan and sovereignty of God. If all things really are beautiful in their time, as we grew up singing, quoting this passage, how do you reconcile that with what's going on in the Supreme Court? How do you reconcile that with what's going on in our presidency? How do you reconcile that with what's going on in Congress? How do you reconcile that with the fact that people get off from serious crimes on court court, um, technicalities that... That seem like the bad guy wins. Solomon now turns in the end of chapter 3 and in chapter 4 and answers that for us. And the answer might shock you. It will certainly arrest your attention. It will certainly make you stop in your tracks. So these three verses cover for us four secrets to survive what Solomon really designates as an unfair world. Four secrets to survive an unfair world. Now, let me just say for a minute, if I can just kind of walk over to our high schoolers and, and our collegians and those who are students and junior hires, this is for you. If you don't get this now, I promise you it's going to tackle you later. 
Solomon is, remember, he's addressing young people and he's saying, your worldview has to be shaped with this understanding of fairness and unfairness and, and injustice and, and misjustice, miscarriages of justice. And how do you format all that in your understanding and your calculation of God's sovereignty? You better have an answer. Let's look at these together, these three of these uh, uh, verses un, that, that uh, show us the secrets to look into the survival that we need to accomplish in a world that's very unfair. Well, by the way, why secrets? I call them secrets because only a Christian who believes God and his word can discover these truths through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the illumination of his work in our hearts. To everyone else, these secrets are just a mystery. Let's look at them uh, very briefly. Number one, first secret, the world will continue to be an unfair place. Isn't that good that you came to church to hear that? The world's unfair, and it's going to stay that way. Just know that. Look at verse 16. Furthermore, I have seen under the sun, remember, that's life outside the garden, after the fall, and before the the last garden, before redemption and glorification in heaven, I have seen under the sun that, In the place of justice, there's wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, there is wickedness. Now, can anyone look at Solomon's assessment of the world and say, yeah, I've seen that too. That is not a surprise to me. It may seem like a gross overstatement, but what it does is keep us from having the hope that things will somehow, someday, some way get to the place where everything will work out for best in this world and under the sun. Be careful not to become a pessimist, but Solomon is saying it's bad, it's not going to get better, and you need to have a perspective for this world and the next. What does Ephesians tell us? We are in a place where the prince of the power of the air is ruling right now. It's the place of justice. That's the law course he's talking about here. The point is that justice exercised by humans is corrupt. Wickedness prevails precisely where it should not in the courtroom. We can see that just about in the headlines every day. People who are obviously guilty who get off on technicalities. There's a situation I've been following in Indonesia where Christians are being killed in the streets after going through a mock trial where they've been convicted of this crime, believing in Jesus. Listen to the warning of Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles 19, verse 5. He says, He appointed judges in the land, fortified cities of Judah, that's Jehoshaphat, city by city, He said to the judges, consider what you are doing, for you do not judge for man, but for the Lord, who is with you when you render judgment. One day, every justice and every judge will give an account to God that they were responsible to render judgments according to God's righteous standard. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be very careful what you do, for the Lord our God will have no part in unrighteousness or partiality or the taking of a bribe. 
Just for a moment, you have to look at this over in Isaiah. Flip a couple of books to the right. In Isaiah chapter 5. That time when Israel was pursuing their own way in the later years of King Uzziah. Look at chapter 5, verse 18. Listen to this. Woe to those who drag iniquity with cords of falsehood. They just drag it around like it's their pet on a leash. And sin as if it was, has cart ropes. Not only are they proud of their sin, they go to great lengths to tote their sin around. Woe to those who say, let him make speed. Let him hasten his work that we may see it. They're mocking God. And let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come to pass that we may know it. In other words, we don't see God acting, so we're not sure he's going to act. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Few descriptions could be more perfect than this in relation to recent decisions of our Supreme Court. Woe to those who call evil good and call good evil. Look at this. Who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. Who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes without God and his word and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men and mixing strong drink who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. It's talking about Wicked Israel under King Uzziah. Couldn't that be an apt description of our culture today? A culture in which evil is called good and helpful, and good is called evil and intolerant. Think of our world. What a world we live in. A world in which God is sovereign, but life is not that bowl of cherries. It's it's a bowl of pits. Evil men succeed. Christians don't always win. Justice is perverted in the courts. Innocent people die. Children starve to death and on planet. Natural disasters kill countless people. Ships sink. Planes crash. Cars crash. Avalanches wipe out skiers having the time of their lives. People get cancer, young and old. Nazi Germany develops, ISIS beheads people, Planned Parenthood sells body parts from babies. So Solomon is saying, so what's the point of following a God who's in control of such a universe? Can he just fix it? After just saying that he appoints everything, everything is beautiful in his time, then we're, we're to look around at the world that's literally pursuing hell as fast as it can and say, what in the world is this? How can we survive in an unfair world? Just look over in Ecclesiastes. There's a hint over in chapter 5, verse 8. If you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight. Don't be shocked. Solomon tells us 
It's going to be bad. Don't get shocked. Now, I have to say to my friends who believe that we are now in the kingdom of God, the amillennial friends of ours, or the postmillennial, that we're going to keep making the world better and then God will come back, they just need to read a headline. They just need to read a newspaper and read Ecclesiastes. This is the way it's going to be. This is not the final kingdom in its final iteration. The world will continue to be an unfair place, so don't expect the world to be fair. Went to school with a friend in college. He um, was uh, uh, sick, went to the doctor, everything was, was, he was an honorable guy. He uh, couldn't go to take a final exam. Came back the next uh, day. The professor graciously said, you can take the final exam. They put him in another room. He uh, took the final exam, did very well. The instructor then accused him of cheating. Now, I took him at his word that he didn't cheat. For three years, he appealed almost not being able to graduate. And it's not fair. It's not fair. Solomon is saying, what do you expect? What do you expect? Do you expect this to be the world? And, and if I can be political, I hate being political but, political, but if I can be political for one moment, do you really believe that voting in a different party and a different man will cause the world to stop being like it's been since Solomon's days? Is our hope really in another election? The world's going to continue to be an unfair place. Don't expect it to be, un, to be fair. That's a secret. That's a good thing. Because if you have your expectations on this world in the right place, then you'll look forward to heaven, as we'll see at the end of the book. You'll look forward to fellowship with God's bride, the body of Christ. You'll understand what preciousness fellowship is. It will change your perspective. We will run to this place with each other as a refuge from the world and a a foretaste of glory divine. When we come to church on Sundays, it should be heaven practice. Practice for what we're going to be doing for the rest of all eternity. Let's look at the second secret to know that you need to know if you want to survive an unfair world. Number two, the justice of God will eventually settle all injustice. Don't be despaired. Don't think God is somehow going to lose. The justice of God will eventually settle all injustice. Verse 17. I said to myself, now when Solomon says something to himself, that's a wise man having musings. He's, he's talking to himself and he's theologically deducing the conclusion he should come to. I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man. For a time for every matter and for every deed is there. You can almost feel him take a deep breath and a sigh and let it out. It's going to be okay. God will come to the point of judgment with the righteous and the wicked. Evil men do indeed succeed, and the people of God do indeed lose often. They don't always win. Solomon's saying, but there's hope. Remember, good guys may finish last, but bad guys go to hell. It's okay for those who trust God in the end. It's not okay for those who have become wise in their own eyes, as, as Isaiah said, who've called good evil and evil good, who brag about sin and tote it around like it's a pet. Three key words will settle this whole problem. 
Look at it. God will judge. If you underline things in your Bible, that's a pretty important statement. God will judge. There is indeed a time for everything, and everything has its time, and it's appointed by God, and God has ordained everything, but he's also ordained that all people would be judged. The timing of this, as well as the time of our death, is not for us to decide. It's not for mortals to decide. We, we learned last time that God has appointed a time for our deaths. He knows the day we're going to die. Now, we can go to the gym. We can drink green blended cabbage. We can do anything that you want to, to make. Uh, you can, you can uh, ride the gluten-free train as long as you want. I'm telling you, nothing will prolong the inevitability of your and my day before God. Nothing. You can feel better. I mean, do we really think God's up in heaven saying, wow, they're doing the sugar busters and the gluten-free, and now they're on the Atkins diet. We're going to make them live longer. Good for them. That's not the way he decides our destiny. Now, um, if you want to go to the gym, go to the gym. If you want to walk, walk. If you want to get in shape, get in shape. That's great. It'll make you more effective for the Lord. Praise God. Let's get in shape and be more effective for the Lord. But don't be under the illusion that your longevity is in your hands God has circled on his calendar the day that we will all show up before him and be judged. You know how the, ver- the book ends, right? Look over at the last, uh, last verse, verses, actually. <clears throat> Ecclesiastes 12. We'll keep coming to this. Remember, this was intended to be one sermon that was, that was preached from beginning to end. The conclusion, chapter 12, verse 13, the conclusion when all has been heard is, fear the Lord, fear God, keep his commandments, because this applies to every person, for, here it is, God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it's good or evil. God will seek that which is past, chapter 3, verse 15 says, Pursued, and he'll bring everything to judgment. It's an important theological footnote we need to make here. Justice and vengeance belong to God and to God alone. We don't have to make sure that people get it while they're, they're on this planet. We're, we're not God and judge and executioner. If you're taking advantage of it, it's okay. I gotta tell myself this when I'm driving. When, when, when someone cuts me off, it's not my job to speed up and let him know he cut me off or she cut me off, and that this is something that, that we need to take care of. I, I told you, because it's, it's an ever-present lesson. Uh, I was with my mentor, Fred Barshaw, when we were on the 170 freeway back in my first year of, of seminary, and we were driving, and, and a guy cut me off, and I was obviously irritated. He said, Rick, just forgive him. That's all you got? Just forgive him. Just forgive him. God will take care of everything eventually. Vengeance is God. Psalm 94. Oh, Lord, God of vengeance. God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render recompense to the proud. How long shall the wicked, O Lord, how long shall the wicked exult? 
They pour forth words. They speak arrogantly. All who do wickedness vaunt themselves. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the orphans. And they have said, the Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob pay attention. Does he pay heed? God answers these questions with nothing left to doubt. Deuteronomy 32, vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time, their foot will slip. That's the passage on which Jonathan Edwards based his famous uh, sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Vengeance is mine and retribution in time, due time, their foot will slip. The Lord will vindicate himself and his people. Just sometime read Psalm, excuse me, Deuteronomy 32, verses 35 to 43, and the vengeance that God is certainly in control of. By the way, that text is quoted in the New Testament in Romans 12 and in Hebrews 12. Vengeance is God's. It's funny how you can hear something and it kind of rocks your world, changes your life, sets your perspective. John Piper, years ago, I was listening to a sermon he preached. And it was just a little phrase, a little rhyme he said that has been so penetrating in my own thinking. He says, if you hold a grudge, you doubt the judge. And he's right. Do we really think we have to make all things right? One more text. Nahum, that passage that I'm sure most of you read often. Nahum chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. The oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the... Elkishite, a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is an avenging and wrathful God. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries. He reserves wrath for his enemies. Listen, he reserves. He has it stored up. It's going to happen. He reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In a whirlwind and in a storm, and it is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him. The hills dissolve indeed. The earth is upheaved by his presence. The world and all its inhabitants in it. Who can stand before the Lord and his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken up by him. The Lord is good and a stronghold in the day of trouble and he knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness. You say, why all the fuss, Rick? Because we are so prone to try to make vengeance happen in our way and in our time and uh, with our manipulations, with our voting, with our politics. This is the problem. We're being entertained with so much violence. I think it summons up a desire in our heart for the bad guy to get it before the show is over. I mean, every one of these dramas are exactly the same. If you figure this out, for about 40 minutes, the bad guy organizes his crime, does his bad deeds, and it all goes well. The good guy comes in at about minute 40, and for the next 10 minutes, he looks like he's going to lose. And the next, in the last 10 minutes, he always wins. And we want life to work like that. And God says, it doesn't work like that. 
Evil men will proceed from bad to worse. Genesis 18, 25. Far be it from me, from you, to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly. Do we trust that God is in control? I'm going to vote my conscience. I'm going to do everything I can uh, with my power, within the governmental system that God's given me to try to promote his morals. But when it doesn't happen, we can't give up that he's somehow lost his control. You know what we do? We tell our neighbors about Jesus. We tell our friends at work how they can be redeemed from their sin. We have evangelistic outreach and effort in the circle that God has given us. We know the world is going to go the wrong direction. Don't let that be a surprise. The world is going to continue to be an unfair place. Don't expect it to be fair. The justice of God will eventually settle all injustice. So leave judgment to God. Third secret. This is going to be, we'll cover this quickly because Solomon is going to repeat this lesson over and over in the coming chapters. Death is the great leveler. Death is the great leveler. This is almost humorous how he talks of death. Verse 18, I said to myself concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. Now, is God calling us all a bunch of animals? Well, yes and no. Uh, yes, in terms of the fact that, uh, in, in relation to the fact that we die like animals do, but he's not just calling us all beasts. He surely could. He explains in verse 19 what he means. For the fate of the sons of men, where we end up, and the fate of the beasts is the same. What are you talking about? As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath, and there is no advantage for a man over a beast, for it is all vanity. They all go to the same place. He's not talking about heaven or hell. He's talking about the grave. All came from the dust. All will return to the dust. Who knows that the breath of a man ascends upward and the breath of the beast descends downward to the earth. Solomon will continue to teach us about death. You're not ready to live until you're ready to die. And if you know how to die, you know how to live. As far as morality is concerned, there's no difference between the wise and the fool. They all die. The animal and the human, they all die. Death is at the end of all of our journey unless the rapture comes. I'm personally praying for that. Solomon is not saying that the quality of human life is no different than the quality of animals. He's just saying we all die. No doubt he's thinking of a hymn of Israel that he had probably sung many, many times before. The hymn is in Psalm 49. For he sees that even the wise men die, the stupid and the senseless alike perish, and their wealth goes to another. Their inner thought is that their houses are forever. They think they're going to make it forever. And their dwelling places to all generations. They have called their lands after their own names. But man in his pomp will not endure. He is like the beasts that perish. Psalm 49. And then verse 20 says... Man in his arrogance, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. He'll come back to this theme in chapter 12, so you can hold on to that. Verse 21 um, is interesting. There's manuscript and syntactical reasons not to translate this as a question, but rather a statement. 
It's obviously the proper translation uh, uh, because Solomon has assured us that God will judge after death. So, so he wouldn't turn around and tell us that death is not the end. By the way, um, man ascends upward into judgment to live forever in heaven or hell. The beasts go to the earth. There, animals don't go to heaven or hell except cats <laughs> which were predestined to condemnation. I find it interesting though that there are animals in heaven. We see the horse, right? There's the horses that come back that Jesus rides on. And we have to believe, looking at at least the millennial kingdom, if that's any pattern for the eternal, that God's creativity in creating all these animals will show up again in our enjoyment in heaven. But animals don't experience salvation. If you've gone home to evangelize your dog or cat, the prayer room is open after the service, and we would love to counsel you. The point is, are we ready? Are we ready to face our death? That's his point. We're going to come back to that over and over in this book. Death is the great level or so. Be ready to meet the judge with Christ on your side. The fourth secret to living, surviving in an unfair world is this. Even in our unfair world, happiness is still possible. You can, Solomon can feel what you and I feel like. Ah, it's... Bad guys win. No justice. This isn't good. Why am I even involved with this? I might as well just be an Epicurean and eat and drink all I want and then die. He says, no, no, no. Just because it's like this doesn't mean there's no happiness for the righteous or those who are believers in New Testament terminology. Verse 22, I've seen that nothing is better than that man should be happy in his activities. For that is his assignment or lot. God has assigned us to enjoy happiness in life as we find it. It's good that we would be happy for who will bring him to see what will occur after him. In other words, who's going to lead him to his own coffin and say, are you ready for that day? Now that you're ready for that day when you will be planted like every other human before our generation has, when you will be in a grave, when you know that, then come back and say, I'm going to enjoy God and I'm going to enjoy this world as well. Let me give you a, a literal rendition of the Hebrew here. In a universe where there are unbearable injustices, eat a Cinnabon. Silly as that sounds, that's the sense of what he's saying. Find happiness and enjoy it. If anyone should derive happiness from the things which God has created and ordained on this planet, it ought to be a Christian who can turn that into worship. God, thank you for this. Thank you for the pulp in my orange juice. Thank you for the strength of my coffee. Thank you that my tea is so strong it stains your teeth to look at. Thank you for the sweetness of a donut, the juiciness of a steak. Thank you for the, the pleasantness of a sunrise and sunset. Thank you for the fact that I get to sit around a table with people who, who not only I love, but who love me. Be happy in what you're doing. Go. Go fishing, go on a drive, enjoy life. As long as you're seeing that God is the giver of those good things. If you have a settled account with God because of Christ, you're freed up to enjoy life without 
dread of despair. Warren Wiersbe says this, Faith learns to live with seeming inconsequences and absurdities, for we live by promises, not by explanations. We live by promises, not by explanations. That's a great insight. We need to take every day as a gift from God, every gift as from God, every goodness as him smiling on us and learn to kneel in humble thankfulness for them. Look, this is an unfair world. And it's gonna get worse. Honestly, if you think it's unfair here, I'd like to take you to Africa to see what's happening in South Africa. Maybe go over to Saudi Arabia or Uzbekistan or Kazakhstan or Mongolia, Sudan, where they're continue. They say that uh, a dozen Christians are, are murdered every day in Sudan for their faith. Well, we, we just don't have a lot to complain about here. We have a lot to enjoy. I think the Lord is likely disappointed in our lack of thanksgiving for the many blessings that we enjoy. Let's enjoy them as gifts from him. In Matthew 6, Jesus defined wealth by this. If you know where you're going to sleep tonight, if you have more than one set of clothes to wear, and you know where your next meal is coming from, by biblical definition, you're wealthy, you're rich. Most of us have not had to apply the disciples' prayer where we were so in need, we had to pray, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Oh, we're often careful to thank God for our food when we begin a meal, and we should. But when have, a, when have any of us stopped to, to ask God at the beginning of, the, beginning of a day, give us this day our daily bread? In other words, if you don't feed me today by supernatural means I will go hungry. We're so blessed. So tonight, most of you are gonna go home and you're gonna have a snack, you're gonna have a dinner. Sundays are always hard, aren't they? Because we, we start at six o'clock. Do you go home for a meal or a snack or both? <laughs> Try this. Get your family together at a restaurant or in your home. Look at what you have and see the smile of God that gives that to you. Enjoy it as a gift from him. Even in our unfair world, happiness is still possible. So, to coin a phrase, don't worry, be happy. The only way you're going to do that is if the judgment that he keeps talking about is settled. And as we say over and over, that's because we, we've trusted the gospel and believe Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. If that's, not your, if that's not your refuge, if that's not your strength, if that's not where you run, if that's not your protection from God's wrath and judgment, you are in a lot of trouble with God. And I would beg you, please, settle that account by having his death count for yours and his righteousness given to you. Don't let this go by. 
without that decision. Father, please give us perspective. Perspective where we're responsible citizens and yet realists, knowing that we are living in a world that's, at this point, allotted to the devil's rule, the prince of the power of the air. But we know he will not remain the victor forever, that you will come and put him in his place literally and establish your kingdom. And until that day, help us to be faithful, to see any happiness as a gift from you and any injustice as a reason to trust you more that one day you will make all things right. And thank you, Lord. Thank you for this book, Solomon's Wisdom, that just pierces our culture and our understanding, that gives us perspective and sends us into action. Give us our marching orders to trust you, to believe you, to anchor our faith in your son and to enjoy this life with intentional thankfulness for the happiness you've granted. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.